millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We're back with part two of the passion of Tyrion and Varys, aka how to deal with unfit emperors. No intro needed. We're going to dive right in. We just ended last time by talking only briefly, I think, about Daenerys of House Targaryen, first of her name, the unburnt queen of the Andals, the Ronyar and the First Men, queen of the Marine, Khaleesi, the Great Grassy, protector of the realm, lady region of the Seven Kingdoms, breaker of chains, and mother of dragons. Sorry, my girlfriend walked in. What was that again? Oh, sorry. Uh, Leah, last time we just ended talking very briefly about Daenerys, the House Targaryen, first of her name, the Unburned Queen of the Andals, the Ronyar, and the First Men, <laughs> Queen Marine, Khaleesi, the Great Grassy, Protector of the Realm, Lady Region of the Seven Kingdoms, Breaker of Chains, and Mother of Dragons. Got it. Thanks. Yeah. And I think I want to, I think I just want to like spend a minute summarizing her before we move on to more, you know, more recent historical examples or whatever, more pressured historical examples in Rome and China. And I think the thing I want to, I want to talk about with the Khaleesi is that. She, you know, she got done. I mean, she got done dirty in in season eight. I think her whole like, oh, I heard bells. I'm just going to, you know, murder an entire city. Let's leave that aside. Right. (laughs) And and just because it didn't actually happen, that was just like a fever dream that the writers had about like, what's the worst possible way we could end this show? And they decided to write it. But so the, the bells aside, she and look, if you're if you're if you haven't seen Game of Thrones yet, it's your own problem at this point. But I think the bells aside, right, one of the things we need to keep in mind is that this is someone who's actually very competent in a lot of ways, right? She's clever. She's great at building allies. She is at times quite compassionate. Like, she's a very powerful leader. She got the Dothraki on her side. She got the Unsullied on her side. She, you know, built her base by actually freeing people from tyranny and breaking the wheel. and. You know, and then introduce herself to Westeros, not by invading King's Landing, but by helping defend the North and thus the entire realm against the Night King. Like, good stuff here. But she was inexperienced, right? And so you can have, you can be a troubled leader who's just a brilliant person and have, like, nothing wrong with you other than, look, you weren't born in the purple. You didn't grow up being taught how to do this stuff. Yeah, but I think to to Daenerys's point, I mean, generally also, one of the skills of a really competent leader is picking competent administrators. Like you might not yes. be the expert in, in, you know, economics or whatever, but the person that you pick who is the expert, you need to be a good judge of their character. And she did right. seem to do that quite a bit. She picked uh, Sir Jorah, which I mean, and she she struggled with that a little bit, right? But Tyrion and Varys both ended up working for, and they both are not perfect people, but arguably they know how government actually works, right? Anyways, go on. Oh, yeah. And I think it's just one of the things I want to say is that we're dealing with various different kinds of troubled leaders. And for Daenerys, it was a lack of experience, much in the same way that for Robert Baratheon, it was a little bit of a lack of experience, although less so, right? He grew up in a in a noble house, which which of course the Khaleesi did as well, but she grew up in exile with only a crappy older brother to guide her. And so she lacked this guidance as she grew up in the way that Robert had it. Robert just wasn't willing to be a good leader. Daenerys was very willing to do it. She lacked the experience. And so, and in particular, I think the thing that got her in trouble is as much as she picked great, great advisors, although also flawed themselves, she has a temper on her. And that meant that that when she, you know, and, and when her patience, when when her patience was at its limit or past its limit, bad things happened. And and that, you know, that temper on her and that that, at, you know, at some point she, you know, that that 
I don't even want to blame her for this because she's been like controlled and manipulated her entire life and at some point wants to exert some of her own autonomy and independence, which, of course, like it's all these circumstances that lead to her having a temper. But, you know, and that's ultimately what turns what turns virus against her and makes him say, you know what, she's too, too troubled to support anymore. She actually has to be taken down. And those kinds of what I love so much about virus's choice. And and regardless of where he falls on it, but the fact that he has to choose, I think, is a pretty common thing for, you know, for the folks that are trying to back a lot of these leaders, in particular, the ones that have some some challenges. They, they have to decide, are they all in or are they all out? There's no in between. There's no, you know, having your, your one foot in, one foot out. Yeah. And I mean, we talked a little bit about Henry the... Uh sixth in the last episode who was i mean a king with some problems uh suffice it to say and that was sort of the thing that set off the wars of roses in great in uh in in england and sort of towards the end of the wars of roses arguably the battle that ended it all which is the battle of bosworth you saw that dynamic really taking play where um i always forget what it was maybe it was um well, there's Richard III. There was well, Richard III gets killed. But what yeah. I'm trying to say is, like, there was a duke or something that abstained from the battle until oh. the outcome was was obvious, and then he rode in just early enough to be like, "Oh yeah, I'm actually on your side." And so, yes. I mean, it, that is a difficult thing that you know aristocrats and like other government administrators often deal with ruthlessly, like that. Yes. Uh, who was that guy? The Lord Thomas Stanley and Sir William Stanley. Stanley. That's Stanley. it. Fucking Stanley. Fucking Stanley. So, yeah, it's, well, that's the, uh, what I love so much about, yeah, we pull, we pull this back. You know, Bosworth is a place where it's not clear who's in charge, right? So we talk about, you know, we talked last time about legitimacy and, and uh, now we're going to, we're going to take, you know, take this whole War of the Roses thing and truly run with it because, you know, that's Game of Thrones based on the War of Roses and such. You know, Henry VI had actually lost legitimacy. He was only a veneer. Uh, you know, he was a he was a, a cookie or, or like an object of legitimacy that uh, people could use. And, you know, they, they essentially fought over his his personage. But really, legitimacy was in the person who controlled him, whether it was the Yorks or the Lancastrians. And, you know, and of course, the the. The fact that Stanley was able to stand aside and say, oh, I wonder who I'm going to support means that there was no legitimacy, right? There was no, no, nobody, nobody was the one where you were obviously expected to back this person until you were out in the way that Varus was like, I need to back the Khaleesi until I'm fully out, like until it's really bad. You could actually get away with like Henry had, Henry VI had lost so much legitimacy. Nobody had it. So that you could actually get away with standing on the fence. Whereas if someone has clear legitimacy, if you stand on the fence and they win, you're toast. It's over. Yeah. You know, dragons burning. Like you can't you can't be on the fence. You know, it's it's I mean, if you think of like both Stannis and uh Daenerys were pretty fond of saying, I mean, Stannis, I've I've only remember how Stannis said it, but it was, you know, bend the knee or be destroyed. I'm the legitimate king. I have legitimacy. I'm not negotiating with you, right? That's that's not how monarchies work, buddy. Bend the knee or be destroyed. And when legitimacy has fallen so far, you know, and that's again, that's that happened in Game of Thrones. Stannis was a little bit delusional, even though he was he was he was like, you know, by some arguments in the right, he was a little bit delusional. Um, the Khaleesi was cleverer uh, about how to build legitimacy. You know, Stannis eventually also tried to build legitimacy by helping the North and. Whether you can, what again? Anyway, what's what's so interesting about both Varus and Stanley is how much legitimacy someone has and what alternatives there are to legitimate ruler, right? For Varus, this is obviously Jon Snow. I don't want it, right? She's my queen, and so there were other options for legitimacy in a way that you know, like right now in the United States, for example, it's like, oh, you know, if someone said, well, Trump's, you know, you know what, we should just unseat Trump. Right in the middle of the in the middle of the thing, who should be who should be the next president? Even if you did it by 
legitimate means, such as impeachment, well, there's no alternatives for legitimacy. The, alter- like, the alternative is Mike Pence. That's it. And then if you manage to you know, impeach Mike Pence, it's Nancy Pelosi. Because the legitimacy is embedded in the system, right? The system of selection as opposed to the personage. And so your legitimacy there is much stronger. I guess in the United States in, and in these you know, democracies that people have bought into, it's a much more ridiculous thing to say, you know what, I'm going to back somebody else than whoever you know, is, is in charge by, by the rules of the system. Because who the heck else are you going to back? Wait four years. Go vote for them. People are so bought into legitimacy of the system, even if they don't like the, out, the momentary outcome, that you actually don't get to just have these alternatives that you could sit on the fence around, such as in the Battle of Bosworth, and, and choose to back or not. Right. And when we talk about legitimate systems of government, we're talking about all of the, all of the institutions, as Eric just said. But there are, of course, different types of government, different forms of government. So you could have republics with an executive branch and a legislative, you know, whatever, the American system. But there are more authoritarian governments. There are more egalitarian governments like Athens. Well, not egalitarian, but it was more of a direct <laughs> democracy. Sorry, I mixed my words there. Um, yeah. More people voted more directly, um, and some argue that we're moving more back towards a direct democracy. But each of those forms of government, when in place, still kind of has to abide by their own rules of uh, legitimacy, right? Because once once that devolves, then you have everyone competing for the things that people always compete over, uh, in part resources and you know control and power and and all that stuff, but once you're caught in that chaos, then everyone ends up just kind of fighting for themselves because they're not, the majority of people are really not in it for the, you know, all of the reasons that like Stalin was in it for. They're just trying to get by. They're fighting, right? I think part of what's important is that you're, you're, you're pulling back, you know, we're pulling back more and more layers here and you pull back the layer into the personal game theory. Why do people buy into these processes of creating legitimacy or of, of, you know, deciding who's in charge, right? Why buy into it? We even go back to like Leo Tolstoy, right? Who we, I, I, I think we talked about him in the last, in the last episode, you know, why, you know, when, when Napoleon says, get up and walk across Europe to kill Russians, why do people do it? And it's because people buy into these systems, these, these authority, these systems of authority where, where they defer some of their own liberty in what they're going to do to someone else, right? And that's weird if you think about it individually. Like, like if I were to look around my neighborhood and say, you know what? We just chose like my neighbor, Mike, to decide, you know, Mike, Mike decided that like I have to go start, you know, like get in a fight with the, the neighboring neighborhood and shoot them. Like that feels a little weird, but it seems a lot more normal for something like a war. And it's because there is a there is a game theory afoot here, and and we can cite Hobbes's Leviathan for why we can cite uh, Locke's treatises on government for why we can cite Rousseau and the social contract for why, but um, you know, and all these guys had had some sort of like social contract thinking, and they, and they thought about why do people cede their own decision making power over themselves, their autonomy to another human, just like another person. Who, you know, as we've seen throughout history and, and sometimes today and in this episode that like may not be smarter than you or me, right? May not be better equipped to make these decisions than you or me necessarily um, as a person. You know, they've, they've got the apparatus of state around there. But basically, why do people give up their autonomy and choose to buy into this social contract, which has duties and obligations? And some of them include picking up a gun and walking across Europe and being killed by Russians, right? Which sounds pretty insane. Like, if I just rolled up to you one day, it's like, hey, pick up a gun, walk across Europe, get killed by Russians. You'd be like, no, thank you. Right. So why do people do this? And I think that's what you're that's what you're exploring, uh, Xander, is is what's what's the game theory? What's the essentially the selfish motivation for why people choose to put themselves at risk, you know, for either defending a form of legitimacy or creating a new version of legitimacy? And what did they get out of it? That's right. I w- the direction I was trying to get to was when you have a government with legitimacy fall for one reason or another, or that, uh, that sense of obligation and legitimacy changes for one reason or another, 
oftentimes you see legitimacy reestablished by physical coercion, right? It is, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to kill you. And then there's sort of this like Darwinian dynamic that goes into effect because like the person often, not all the time, but a lot of time in history who's not willing to kill the other guy to stay in power will get killed by the guy who is willing to kill to stay in power. So you end up getting out of really uh, chaotic revolutions in which the system of legitimacy fails and needs to be reconstructed, dictators coming up out of them that are extremely violent and uh, they, you know, oftentimes drift from the original mes- message that of the revolution that they used to take power. And I think that's as good a transition as, as any to talk about what we're going to get to on the rest of this show, which is some examples of unfit emperors in China and Russia. Yeah. I, what's interesting is I started doing the research for unfit emperors in China and was actually listening, uh, was catching up on Chris Stewart's different Stewart than actually, I don't know, maybe he's related to the Stewart's who sat on the fence at Bosworth, but um, Stanley's. Chris, oh, it's Stanley's. That's why. Never mind. The Stewart's are a dynasty, not the Stanley's were nobody except for that moment. My bad. Anyway, so Chris Stewart, History of China. Obviously, part of the Agora Podcast Network, so somehow I've managed to get a plug in anyway, even though I didn't mean to. But one of the more popular, you know, prop, I think he's got the most popular podcast in in the in the network. So if you haven't heard of him, you've you've messed up. But yeah, it's like, what have you been doing? But anyway, so he goes through the history of China, and and we're of course nowhere near done yet. But I was starting to go through some of his notes and such. And I thought like, Oh God, there's so many unfit emperors Mm -hmm. in China. Just like there's so many Kings who, who kind of don't have a clue in England and in France. And sometimes they come at terrible times and really bad things happen. And part of the problem with like very old Chinese history keeping is that it was so Confucian. This is my own personal my my own personal take on it. So, you know, I, I'm not citing a professor here who's actually smarter than I am, but it's it's so Confucian that, you know, that that every time an emperor does something bad, the the history, the chronicled history either says like one, they lost the mandate, they lost the mandate of heaven, at which point the emperor really screwed up because they're actually blaming him. Or it says actually the emperor was a great guy. He just had bad advisors you know, mostly eunuchs, like for some reason, not having your zygotes attached to you makes you evil. And these like evil eunuchs were, you know, were, were like out to manipulate him and such like that. But, but anyway, like that, the history of like why things happened in the court and what came out of that is, is very hard to piece together. So I kind of gave up on that. And I said, well, I want to talk about China anyway. So who am I going to talk about? Ah, yes. Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong, the, the, the chairman, the, hel- the great helmsman, and, uh, you know, in the passion of, of his guys, Liu, uh, Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping. I got my tones wrong. So Chinese listeners, I apologize because I forget the tones on these guys. But, uh, you know, they've got their own, like, Liu and Deng are actually a little bit like, what's it, Tyrion and Varus, respectively. And Mao, I think, is a lot like is a lot like the Khaleesi, respectively. Why is this? Well, Mao, of course, started out by saying, I'm going to free people from oppression, and I'm going to like gather up an army of the oppressed out in the grasslands. I'm going to fight the power. I'm going to become popular by, you know, I'm going to become popular, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm going to become popular by like leading the fight against the Japanese invaders, and then you know, use my popular base to go take over the dang, you know, dang old country. And then, by the way, when I reach my final point where I get hardcore resistance, a lot of people are going to die. And, uh, I, you know, when I thought about it, I was like, it's a very similar story to um, Daenerys Targaryen and her rise to power, except that Mao didn't have any legitimacy, right? Uh, the Khaleesi could at least trace her line back to the other Targaryens. Right. Mao was, I mean, he grew up a peasant, right? Yes, he did. And he took power the good old fashioned way by brute force. Change must come through a barrel of a gun, Mao Zedong said. Yeah, well, and uh, I mean, clearly he, he did not single-handedly tear all the systems down, but there, there was a long, gradual process that kind of led to the so on and so forth. But 
I mean, he led the war that after China had been beaten down hard by Japan in the Second World War, transformed it into what it is today. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So so I, w- I would say that Mao was a visionary slash revolutionary par excellence, right? But made a lot of terrible, terrible choices, had a, you know, including the Great Leap Forward, the Five-Year Plan, and the Cultural Revolution, which are the three things you hear about Mao from his actual rule, right? Like, what other things did Mao do? Exactly. You don't know, because those are the three things, the three big things he did, and all of them ended badly. And you know, to some extent, props to Mao. He's he's he was a true revolutionary in the way that the Americans weren't. The Americans are just like, hey, can we get rid of the, you know, we we still got these colonial governments, right? And we're going to unite them all, and that's great. But we're just going to get rid of the overseas power that's looking over this. Great, we're going to take these structures that exist and roll with them and modify them a little bit, add some new overhead. Cool. Mao is like, we're tearing down the whole thing, like everything, you know, like. Was it 5,000 years of Chinese history? Actually, sorry, the Republic, the Chinese Republic had done that beforehand, but the Chinese Republic never really got established, which is part of its problem. So there was, there was nothing to grab onto in the 20th century in China. And he had to start from scratch. He made a lot of terrible decisions, but there were some folks around him that were there to help the guy because he had a cult of personality and he, people were going to do what Mao said, whether Liu and Deng liked it or not. So the real trick to helping China was helping Mao try to make or, you know, try to help Mao Zedong make better decisions. Yeah. And I I think we should come back briefly and just talk about what those three things are in a little greater detail. But first, I want to piggyback on something you said, which was, you know, how Mao is a true revolution, uh, revolutionary, right? Unlike the American system. And there's a great book by Theta Scotchpole. Oh, yeah. it, was, it was recommended to me by a friend, Mosin, if he's listening. How are you, Mosin? And Scotchpole distinguishes between two broad classes of revolution, where in a political revolution, you have kind of a, a change of who's in charge. And it's not just like an election. It's like, who's in charge might be a slightly different group of people, but they're still administering everything with basically the same rules, right? The same structures that were there before. A social revolution is one in which class relations completely and fundamentally change in the process. And the book is basically a comparative politics on um, or po- political analysis on France, uh, the French Revolution, Bolshevik Revolution, and the Chinese Communist Revolution. Really good. So in the American case, I think a lot of people have a tendency to fetishize revolution. And I'm sorry, this is one of my soapbox issues. Uh, Get on that box. So, you know, we try to be open about biases we might have. Here's, I have an opinion about this. And it's this, it, it's only using the example of the American Revolution or maybe other, let's stick with the American Revolution. I think a lot of people fetishize re- revolution generally as a concept because the ones that they're more familiar with tend to be the ones that like at least kind of worked out okay. Like in the American case, there was clearly violence, but relative to the land wars that were going on, you know, 20 years earlier during the Seven Years' War in Europe and the wars that would occur or the battles that occurred just a couple of decades later in the French Revolution, the American Revolution was was tiny. It was a sideshow to global Dang. affairs. Yes. And um, when it was over, the British kind of stepped back and the Americans just took over the levers of administration that had just been previously controlled by the British. All the exactly. all the way, you know, ways that taxes were collected and the the federal system. Some things changed, but it was just like a change of who who is in control, right? And that's not the case with social revolutions, where the entire uh, identity of the so- uh, society changes in the, in the course of the violence. So coming back to, to those ideas, Eric, can you give us just a brief overview of Great Leap Forward, uh, Cultural Revolution? Yes. So, and as a precursor to this, 5,000 years of being run by an, em- an, an emperor that we are skipping, right? Skipping. Uh, and then in the 19th 19- yeah. yeah, we are skipping the whole emperor part and how that 5,000 years of history got torn down by uh, Sun Yat-sen in the 1920s, 
creating the Republic, and then the Republic eventually, the, sorry, quickly just turned into Chiang Kai-shek's, I, guys, I know I'm mixing my Cantonese and Mandarin, sorry, but changed into uh, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, basically like military dictatorship during the war. He wasn't planning on giving it up. Mao was already a Marxist and said, F this, we're going all in, communism all the way, got his butt kicked, long march, Second World War, and then the final stages of the communist versus nationalist civil war, 1945 to 1949, and pushes his way down to, down to Guangdong. Fun fact, if you live in the United States uh, and you go to like Chinatowns, many Chinatowns have Taiwanese flags, which are Republic of China flags. It's not a separate country, right? It's the Republic of China. So there's still Republican flags and they speak Cantonese, which is Guangdong in Mandarin. If you heard of Guangdong, they speak Cantonese, even though very few people in China now speak Cantonese. Why is this? Because Guangdong is just across the strait from Taiwan. And a lot of people who said, holy smokes, I don't want to deal with communists because they're scary for a lot of reasons. Uh, They fled to Taiwan and then they were able to flee to the United States. Other people who didn't love the communists were not just across the strait from Taiwan, were not able to flee, were not able to get out. So a lot of the Chinese folks who came to the United States during the 1940s, 50s and 60s happened to be from Guangdong. So they speak Cantonese, they fly the flag of the Republic, and they cook very particular food, such as like... General Tao's chicken and and stuff like that is a, you know, obviously Americanized variation of that region's food. And so you've got other parts of China. You go like, oh, this has nothing to do with Chinese food that I eat in the United States. It must be that Chinese food in the United States has nothing to do with Chinese food. Remember, you know, and I know you, you know, if you've traveled to China and you had that thought, you probably felt very clever. But remember that China is 1.3 billion people. Right. So it's bigger than the United States and Europe and the Middle East put together. So there's a lot of variation in food across its 1.3 billion people. So you're just used to Guangdong food in America. So there's your fun, fun history fact there. So Mao takes over. What does he do first? Great Leap Forward, five-year plan. So five-year plan is the mechanism. Great Leap Forward was the idea. Great Leap Forward, big idea was we're modernizing, baby. Let's go. And so he set up all sorts of communes, right? Uh, almost like, you know, little Soviets. And said, all right, build stuff. And by the way, we still need to take Taiwan. So uh, we need lots more food. We need lots more metal. We need everything. Let's go. And he was so bought into the rural communism notion that he figured like he could just kind of collectivize these rural zones and they would figure it out. Right. Very much like think Yankee ingenuity. Right. If you're if you're American, you're like, yeah, Yankee ingenuity, like American human farmers in the 1800s just figured stuff out. They weren't as sophisticated. They weren't as educated. Who cares? Mao felt the same way about the Chinese people. And guess what? It did turn out that they increased total grain production. But there were a couple of problems. Problem one, there was enough political pressure to be the one. And this is actually a a carryover from the old imperial model uh, and culture in China that that like never changed was there was a lot of pressure for you to have the best, you know, the biggest improvement, the best outcome. And so if you're in charge of one of these communes, you have this, you know, saving face is a Chinese thing for a reason. You have this uh, social and cultural incentive to inflate how well you did, if you can get away with it. So they inflate stuff and then the layer above them inflate stuff and the layer above them inflate stuff. And so everything that travels back to Beijing, which is the capital that Mao chose, makes it look like grain production has like freaking tripled when it's actually gone up by like 50 percent, which is already amazing. Right. Because it's kind of like China was on a war footing. And so they go, holy smokes, we have so much grain that it's going to rot in the silos. Wouldn't want that. We already do have a lot of war debt from Russia, which is having some food problems. So let's ship all of our excess grain to Russia. So let's ship about half of our grain to Russia. Oh, wait, that was all of our grain. Whoops. Whoops. And so millions of people starved to death, even though China was more productive than it ever was. Like literally millions of people starved to death. It was just a massive famine because of, you know, because of how this is set up. And and Mao bought into his own irrational exuberance. The other problem that happened that made this even worse, that was uh, part of the five-year plan, was we're going to industrialize. We need a lot of steel. And so he just set quotas. You know, the, the central Politburo from Beijing set quotas for steel. Some of this was also to turn into shells for Taiwan. And 
one of the things that didn't work out so well, unlike grain production, was he said, you know what? These like, you know, we're going to set up rural industrialization, not urban industrialization with experts, but rural industrialization with like, you know, Chinese ingenuity. And we're going to have these like steel plants, these small steel plants are, you know, near these rural farming communes. And uh, we're going to require people to create steel. And people were so crazy enthusiastic about it that they melted down their own pots and pans and such to create steel. I was under the impression that they were required to do that. Maybe both. Or at least like with with, uh, some gardening instruments, right? Because then part of the problem was when the uh that particular industri- uh, rural industrialization program began to fail and and that began to fail in part because Mao's advisors were afraid of oftentimes giving yes. him accurate information right so there's yes. there's a failure of transit of information because the guy in charge would punish the people who were telling him that his program wasn't working because it would appear like opposition to him this is why you don't shoot the messenger because yeah. uh, if you shoot the messenger you'll never get you'll never learn the truth so i i was under the impression that that began to happen, and Mao thought everything was fine, but in reality, production was halted. And in addition to that, the farmers had converted a lot of their tools, and so they weren't able to return back to a lot of their farming activities because they, exactly, yeah, okay, exactly. So what had happened was like the the steel tools people had, so like plows, you know, as they say, beat your beat your plows into or plowshares into swords, right? Plows, you know, farming equipment. Pots and pans even had been melted into steel. Uh, yeah, I think there were quotas, but there was also at the time a great deal of enthusiasm for it is is what I've like kind of read people saying they remembered. Gotcha. Because in part because the propaganda was like, your steel is going to turn into shells to liberate Taiwan and finally defeat the nationalist fascists once and for all, all that good stuff. I mean, it's a little bit like, I mean, look, you think that's crazy? There are people who are not, there are going outside not wearing masks right now because of political propaganda, right? So like as the moment you think, oh my God, it's so insane to imagine someone, you know, melting their own pots and pans and plows because the government's, you know, because like some leader said so, like someone they listened to said so. Just remember that there are like literally people who go outside right now in May of 2020 in the United States without masks because like masks are dumb for some reason. So just, just keep that in mind. This happens. And, and I, I know we want to talk about this more on another episode at some point, but I, I need to, I need to run on that tangent for, for a second, because like we've, we've been having beer. It's okay. Yeah. 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 yeah we're, we're, we're well prepared, you know, at reconsider. We, we always try to present as many perspectives as possible, the context you need to make adequate decisions. Right. So you might listen to what Eric said and just like immediately think, Oh, that's anti-Trump. Right. But and then the narrative that grows out of that is uh, local authoritarian governments. And the reason I struggle with that, specifically with the mask mask issue, I'm not even talking about like what rate of reopening or whether or not, you know, how dense we should be. Uh, well, yeah, I'm also talking about the density thing there. There is a disease that has killed 90,000 people, which in the great scheme of things is maybe three times as much as the flu kills every year with all the quarantine measures. Right. And it's. It is a matter of like risk. I'm really struggling to frame this a little bit right now. The way we were talking about it earlier, there is a risk you're taking when you go out into public all the time. Like I get that and everyone gets that, right? But I'm, I'm losing my tangent. Something about oh risk. Ugh, well, damn it. yeah, it's, it's what, I mean, I think where you're going is that, is that yes, there is risk going outside. And, and so, you know, isn't risk just a matter of degrees rather than kind? Sure. The degree has gone up substantially. And the problem is, you know, and, and one, there's a couple of problems. One of them is that, like, there's really not a good reason not to wear a mask. And, you know, I think everyone's going like, oh, the state wants you to wear masks. Therefore, it's bad. It's like, no, there are people who, like, work for the government who are telling you it's a really bad idea not to wear a mask, both for yourself and for other people. And one of, you know, I've, I've heard this, like, quote being thrown around a lot by Benjamin Franklin, which goes something like, you know, those who would give up their personal liberty for a little security deserve neither. And like one, wearing a mask isn't giving up your personal liberty. And two, wearing a mask isn't about your personal security either. It's about you not getting other people sick. I right? remember what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah. totally. And 
you know, uh, it really is an issue of relative risk. And if you know me, you know how I feel about like privacy issues. We did a show way, way, way back when like episode four about um, the FBI and Apple and everything that was going on then with mass surveillance. And I think there is a serious risk in moments of crisis of surrendering freedom unnecessarily to the ah, government yes. that is very, you know, loath to return it. And we talked about this, I think, two episodes ago now on the Drunkenomics and Plagues one. Get that. I'm on board with that. I agree with it. But when you look at the actual like risk of this particular event with all of the measures that we've implemented, it I I struggle to understand why it's not warranted to make a small, small sacrifice like wearing a mask to limit the spread of droplets that could potentially cause, you know, it's not the plague. We talked about relative uh, risk from different diseases on on the um, two episodes ago, but it's it's such a small sacrifice. And sometimes in a society like Eric, you were talking about earlier, uh, all the great philosophers talk about the social contract in some form or another. And I just think that like, we're lucky we don't have to go to war right now. And people have had to make those like, you know, the people marching across Europe under Napoleon, the mask thing in particular just seems like such a small sacrifice to make for something that could potentially have consequences for other people, not just yourself. Right. Right. right it's yeah. Here's my opinion. It's like, you're an a-hole. If you don't wear masks, I don't care what the CD says, CDC says, like, I don't care that the government told you to wear masks. I don't care that someone else told you not to wear masks. If you're not wearing a mask, you might have the coronavirus and not know it because many people are asymptomatic. You might get other people killed. And there is a far outsized chance of you getting other people killed by not wearing a mask versus doing other things most of the time. And by choosing not to do so to make some point, you're an a-hole. And that's, that's all it is. This has nothing to do with authoritarianism. This has nothing to do with the government. This has nothing to do with your liberties. Like, are you choosing to be an a-hole or not? It is a personal choice, except in, like, going in Costco. You can't go in Costco without a mask. But, like, you go outside, it is ultimately up to you whether you're going to follow that guidance. And the evidence is so overwhelmingly clear that you put people at outsized risk. And, like, you just try to be a tough guy not wearing a mask. You're an a-hole. And, like, that's it, right? It's it's not it's not up about anything else. It's just whether you're an a-hole or not. So, anyway. Those listening who have been big reconsider fans who like hate wearing masks, I probably lost you as listeners, but there are more important things than having you as a listener. Maybe you will reflect on why I think you're an a hole. Wow. Boom. Jeez. Oof. Yeah. It's like a Rick and Morty moment. Oof. So, so speaking of which, I'm about two thirds of the way through uh, Russian River Brewing Company's Pliny the Elder. Oh, I hate you so much right now. So, I want. Wait, do you, <sighs> do you not have any beer? I have uh, an, 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 an inadequate bourbon soda that's not as good oh. as Pliny the Elder. Got it. Is it Pliny? Uh, I don't know. I don't speak Latin. Got it. That's fair. It's a dead language. We can, we can say what we want. Exactly. So, yeah, that's probably the most intense thing I've ever said, but I think people's lives are on the line right now, and it it, like... At some point, it's like irresponsible of me to pretend that like everyone's opinion is equally valid because it's not. And wear masks, folks, please don't get other people killed. Speaking of getting people killed. So here we are melting plowshares, melting pots and pans. What this meant was that the famine was exacerbated in China because of the little food that people had. They couldn't cook it. And it turns out you get fewer calories from raw grain than cooked grain. And so even more people died. It was really bad. And uh, from a great Columbia University article that we that we have linked here, that like it's like not anything special to say this, but quote, the failure of the Great Leap Forward led Mao to turn many responsibilities over to other leaders, such as Liu Xiaoqi, Deng Xiaoping, etc., and to withdraw from active decision making. So Mao kills twenty million people or more. And I think it was actually more, it was ten, but tens of millions of people with some very bad decision making. As much as I hate to say it, props to him, because <laughs> at some point he goes, oh, God, oh, wow, I'm really bad at this. Like that didn't that did not go well. And I should not be in charge of this anymore. Some other people should be. 
Right. And so usually after purging a lot of people who tried to tell him along the way. Okay, fine. Good on him compared to compared to other communist fascist or other hyper authoritarian dictator maniacs. All right. Like, okay, fine. My standards were pretty low. But if you think it was like Stalin, right, Stalin starved a lot of people. He just did it intentionally. Right. And. So he t- he turns decision making power over because he realized. I guess my point is that he realizes he has some decision making flaws, and the thing is, like, it's I don't I don't you know whether whether or not like Mao would have done this. It had two million people died rather than twenty to fifty. It, you know, at some point it was kind of out of his control. Like he he had he had set it off. You know, he had, he had set the snowball rolling, and the avalanche happened. And how big was the avalanche? You know, who knows? But the guy realized he caused an avalanche. A lot of people died. And he goes, I shouldn't be running this anymore. And so he turns it over to Liu and Deng, which if we look at some of our previous leaders that we reviewed here, that never happened. And it's actually going to, in some leaders that we look at next, particularly Nero, it happens briefly and then Nero has to take the reins back and what happens there. But this is a scenario that's interesting. At you know, What kinds of leaders say, I know everything, all of you guys are idiots, I'm smarter than everyone. I'm going to pick a fight with all of my experts that I've coalesced around me because when you're in charge, you can't be an expert in everything. So are you going to pick, are you going to say, you know what? F your economics degree. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want or like forget your 30 or 40 years in public health work. I know more than you do. Um, are you going to do that? And, and at what point do you learn, you know what? Maybe my complete lack of experience is not as valid as this person's PhD in 40 years of experience, right? Um, some leaders have that moment and some don't. Some continue to believe right up until the end that everything they did was right and everything, you know, they're just the, they're a very stable genius and everything they've done is, is you know, is, is smart. And everything, every time someone disagrees with them, that person is dumb or needs to die. So now, Mal Mal had a switch. Go ahead. I I want to I do want to prevent uh, present a counterpoint to that particular line of reasoning before you get into Rome. And sorry, I said Russia mm. earlier, but it's actually Rome that we're going to talk about uh, finally on the show. Which is oftentimes the experts are wrong, depending on you know w- which Ooh. experts you're talking about. And the example that came immediately to my mind was the uh, Cuba Missile Crisis, because all of uh, John F. Kennedy's yeah. military advisors were telling him to immediately conduct the airstrike to take out the intermediate range uh, ballistic missiles. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people in... They retro- really retros- pressured him big time. Yeah. Yeah. And retrospectively, a lot of people think that would have crossed a threshold for Russia to start a nuclear war. And JFK had already been through an experience with the military advisors that told him to, to kind of do the Bay, Bay of Pigs thing, and it just told turned out to be a total fiasco. So he's like, wait a minute, I need to think critically about what you know these people are telling me and when when he got to the cuba missile crisis he said you know i don't like that option what are the other options and ended up overriding his military advisors to do the uh, blockade so i i do think expertise is valuable it's also good to remember where people are coming from and why yeah no it's true there's there's a reason that the experts aren't the leaders right like leadership and decision making is its own skill set and expertise is its own skill set. And these are actually two different things. Man, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think it's a, yeah, what's the nuance, right? The nuance is, are you able to interpret, you know, are you to, able to interpret things as well as an expert? Like, am I able to, if I was president, am I able to interpret, you know, the, the current public health data about the coronavirus as well as, Dr. Fauci, who's dealt with actually many pandemics, including Ebola, right? Like probably not, right? This guy knows how to model these things. And I, you know, you got to say like, all right, show me the models. Like what's, what's pop, you know, what's likely here, what's possible. What's the kind of, you know, that, that hurricane cone, right. That they show on TV all the time. It's like, oh, the hurricane could end up anywhere from here to here. It's like, great. I want to know, you know, you expert, tell me where the hurricane could end up and what are my options here? And then you do have to make a call and, um, now I could quibble with you about the, the Cuban Missile Crisis because I think in a lot of ways Kennedy got lucky, mm. but you know, and that and that the blockade has its had its own set of risks, and that like no matter no matter what he did, it was going to be insanely risky. Like that was the problem. He was playing you know nuclear poker, like like you know sorry Holocaust but like like nuclear Holocaust poker, and and you know he played his hand and you know he called Khrushchev's bluff and 
all, all this stuff. And it, it was awesome. It was just awesome. But it was and, you know, Kennedy could even end up on this list because in a lot of ways he was unprepared a little bit, but, you know, made a lot of mistakes earlier, especially vis-a-vis Khrushchev. But then again, Khrushchev was a little unprepared. He was just a peasant, could barely read. So like, what's, what's interesting is we're going through all of these you know, unprepared leaders, including Mao. And you know, we're going to talk about Nero and Henry VI, who was basically non-existent. But lower levels of unpreparedness is actually really common. And I was just going to say, like, even about Kennedy, I was actually recently at the Kennedy Museum. And it's like the Kennedy Museum, you know, the presidential museums next to the library. It's like they're supposed to kind of look at the president in a, in a glowing light. And it's very glowing. But one of the things I mentioned was that when Kennedy was elected, there were a lot of people in the United States government that were terrified because hmm. they're, like, they're like, oh, God, like we just got we just got done having, you know, the commander in chief of the allies being our president. And, you know, he made a lot of hard decisions, had to wait a minute. Am I right? Yeah. 1960. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Tr- Truman had to face the, you know, Tr- Truman had to face World War II and the Korean War and Eisenhower had to face the, the airlift the Berlin airlift and, and all this stuff. And Kennedy, who's like basically a playboy. Now he's kind of a, he's a hero, but a playboy and, and just like this rich kid. He's never, you know, and, and he's, he's never made the, well, he has some experience, but, but basically short version is like Nixon had a lot more. Sure. Right. And the American people chose Kennedy. And so like, even then there was this level of inexperience and unpreparedness that the, that the establishment was very worried about when he showed up. And I have nothing else to add on that. So how about we just hop right into the Roman examples? Um, We're going to talk about a handful of emperors. And what's interesting about the Roman example is for a little bit of context, I mean, we're talking about the period right after the Roman Republic fell. So um, let's see, it was uh, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Nero, no, Nero was fifth was fourth. Anyways, first five emperors or so, right? And there was a string of really awful emperors, essentially one after the other. And like, they all came after one of arguably the greatest emperors, which stepped into a revolutionary situation that had been building up for a hundred years and was able to, by depending on and picking good advisors, Marcus Agrippa and um, the other guy, uh, I forget his name, but who helped him with administration, Augustus was able to reassert authority after you know, what was essentially like five decades of civil war, if you go back to like Marius and Sulla. So you had a really, really competent leader and then really several terrible leaders. And right. the the institutions of the Republic had um, essentially fallen. They were still there technically sort of as like, a you know, to keep the aristocrats happy because they were used to them. And they had some like unofficial power. But realistically, it was an autocratic government at that point. Right. And uh, I just went and looked it up, you know, and, and of course, uh, God, I just looked ahead and just like all my favorite emperors are the Nerva Antonin dynasty. But the Julio-Claudian dynasty um, ends after the first five emperors. We have Augustus Imperator, Caesar Divi Filius Augustus, so Augustus, and then Tiberius. Caligula, Claudius, Nero. Claudius. Yeah. Yep. And then later we actually get to when I bring up Commodus, he ends the Nerva Antonine dynasty uh, uh, with a bang, um, just a really bad bang. And uh, those of you who are Mike Duncan fans who know a lot of these names Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius Pius, Lucius Verus, Marcus. Aurelius. Oh, yeah. The last of the five good emperors. And then Commodus. And then the great, Commodus. The great letdown. And then after him, the year of the five emperors, and it goes really badly. And, you know, Rome goes to hell. But anyway, um, yeah. So, so what's interesting is, of course, the three, you know, two of the first five emperors, like really garbage. Oh, yeah, and definitely. The the fact that they even lasted, it's actually a little bit like, so here's, here's, a, um, here, here's a digression. The thought I had, so I'm actually a big Radiohead fan, and I think their first album, Pablo Honey, is just a, is just a it's a dumpster fire. It's, it's an absolute garbage pit of music. And it has this one song, Creep, you know, because I'm a creep. 
I'm a winner. What the hell am I doing here? You know that song, right? Uh-huh. Okay, cool. And it's it's okay, I guess. Like it's okay. It's not great, but like it got some, you know, it got some traction. It went viral before being viral went viral. <laughs> and that gave Radiohead really the right to make another album. And it was the Benz, and it was pretty good. And then they made OK Computer, and it was crazy good, right? And then, and thank goodness that, you know, thank goodness Radiohead survived Pablo Honey, and all thanks to Creep, because the rest of that album was, you know, was a dumpster fire. And I feel the same way about the early Roman emperors. <laughs> like, you know, just like, thank goodness Augustus was the first. Yeah. And, you know, Tiberius is okay and Claudius is okay, but it, you know, the, the Julio-Claudian dynasty feels a little bit like Pablo Honey, right? So, so you know, Julio-Claudian dynasty is to the imperial era of Rome as, you know, Pablo Honey is to Radiohead. We're so glad we made it through that period and that, and, and, and then we got to see some of the later stuff uh, because it was magical. But by God, it it was dodgy for a while. And it was all because of this one song. And in the case of the Romans, that song was Augustus Imperator, Caesar Divi Filius Augustus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although, as I understand it, you know, Augustus is generally considered one of the great emperors. And it seems like uh, Creep was only meh, kind of okay. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That is fair. I mean, I think a lot of people love creep. I, I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't, I don't creep on creep. Ah, I see what you did word. there. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, shall anyways. We, shall we get into the, the other songs on Pablo Honey, also known as Caligula and Nero? Um, yeah, they were, they were rage hits. Um, <laughs> So first off, I got a date wrong um, when I said it had been four decades of civil war. It had been much longer than that. For some reason, I thought it happened earlier, but Roman Republic fell in 27 BC. And for basically 100 years, the, the lead up to the civil wars were, were going on in like uh, 90, 80, 70, you had like massive battles. So decades and decades and decades and decades of massive violence on a scale that, you know, even today is pretty hard to imagine, frankly. Um, getting all, well, especially domestic violence. Oh, yes, right, because all the civil wars are domestic, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, and you had a guy take over with only kind of like superficial checks against his power, and he made a lot of good calls that, like Eric said, similar to the Radiohead songs, carried on into the future and let the Roman Empire survive what ended up being a lot of, you know, dodgy emperors. I mean, Caligula really seems like he was um, mentally not sound like there was something wrong with him he was very cruel and he took pleasure in hurting other objects and animals and people and did really awful things to people but was also a really bad decision maker like on top of all of that um and had like a really thin skin and got angry and lashed out he appointed his his horse in some official position right 
Yep, he did. Yeah. And and yeah, and and so he's one of these he's one of these moments where you know a lot of kind of Roman leaders, you know, they literally some of them were old enough to have been alive when Augustus came to power, and so they're thinking maybe you should bring the Republic back because you know kings bad. Like we're Romans, we hate kings. But let me pull a quote for just from Wikipedia because why not? Right, it's good enough. Quote. Caligula was known for his lavish projects, his sadism, and his eccentricity. He once had his army construct a two-mile floating bridge so he could gallop along it on his horse. In another episode, he orders his he ordered his troops to quote plunder the sea by gathering shells in their helmets. Tall and hairy, I don't know how that's relevant. Caligula <laughs> is said to abandon the mention of goats in his presence. Oh, that's why it's sorry. That, that's what that I should have just finished it. That's why. So <clears throat> tall and hairy Caligula is said to have banned the mention of goats in his presence, but practiced facial contortions to better terrify his subjects. He built a lavish house for his horse Ignatius or in Incatatius and attempted to appoint the seed to the high office of consul, though he was assassinated before he could complete the promotion. End quote. Like really seriously not put together, right? So, so why do we even bring up Caligula? Because because this is really about the Tyrians and Tyrians and viruses of history. And so, interestingly, Caligula was also the first guy to order Seneca to commit suicide. So, two <laughs> like how cool do you have to be to have two emperors, com- you know, tell you to commit suicide? <laughs> Possibly that's a Guinness World Record. Think about it. Caligula was the original hater. Yeah, exactly. Of, of so, Seneca. Quote, Cassius Dio relates a story that Caligula was so offended by Seneca's oratorial success in the Senate that he ordered him to commit suicide. Seneca only survived because he was seriously ill and Caligula was told that he would soon die anyway. Ha <laughs> ha! In his writing, Seneca has nothing good to say about Caligula and frequently depicts him as a monster. Seneca explains his own survival as down to his patience and his de- and his devotion to his friends. Embedded quote, I wanted to avoid the impression that all I could do for loyalty was die. That's what Seneca said and quote Wikipedia and quote. Yeah. And for folks not familiar with Seneca, he's one of the big stoic authors. And he went on to become uh, a major advisor to Nero. Um, and that's, he talks about that a lot in the letters that he writes to his uh, friend Lu- Lu- Lucilius, Lucilius. And it's, it's interesting to hear him talk about it because, you know, he is a wealthy Roman aristocrat. But on the other hand, when he talks about things that are in and out of his, his control, it was a directly applicable, tangible notion to him because there's so much that was decided for him in his life. By the emperor. There was so much that he had to be careful of and he just had to accept. Because if he didn't, Nero was not quite Caligula crazy, but pretty crazy. Right. Yeah, I mean, Nero seemed to like do some good stuff. One of the things that made Nero special, I think, was that like Mao, at some point he realized, like, I need help. Mm-hmm. Right. And that realization of I need some bloody help is a big one. And, uh, you know, vis-a-vis Caligula, uh, Seneca was just a senator and, you know, and a, and, and a biting one who said a lot of th- bad things about Caligula. For Nero, he actually chose to become his mentor. And that, that really allows us to have a lot of light into their relationship. So, for example, we know that Seneca composed Nero's accession speeches in which Nero promised to restore proper legal procedure and authority to the Senate. Seneca also composed the eulogy for Claudius that Nero delivered at the funeral. So if we um, remember that that Caligula happened, then Claudius, then Nero. And so Nero comes into power, promising to restore order to the Senate. Remember that the Senate had, like, largely speaking, lost power in, what's it, like, largely lost power in 27 BC when Augustus took power, a little bit before then. And then... Uh, 54 AD, so like 60, 70 years later, here comes Nero because of Seneca talking about, oh yeah, you know, maybe we'll restore some Republic stuff. But the other thing that um, Seneca did to help Nero is he wrote On Clemency, 
which was a, a book that Seneca wrote following Nero's murder of Britannicus, uh, perhaps to ensure the citizenry that the murder was at the end, not the beginning of bloodshed. So Seneca was there providing Nero some PR support in addition to mentorship. So we can think about that in some current situations where we've got a leader who's not necessarily, you know, even all there. And you've, you've got someone who is, you know, it, it happens to be that Seneca was like one of the wisest people who ever lived probably. And um, so he's providing PR support for this guy that he knows is flawed because he thinks it's the best move to help the guy in charge rather than undermine him. Decides to help him and decides to essentially explain the murder of Britannicus as something that was necessary and good and that and make the claim that Nero actually was had a lot of clemency and that you should just fall in line and follow Nero. And that's a really interesting thing from someone who like ultimately, you know, is told to kill himself by Nero. And the thing that I think is last thing I'll say on this is I think that the most important part of on clemency here is that what. Seneca says happened regarding the murder of Tiberius is false. What Nero actually did was like pretty brutal and awful. And Seneca says, oh yeah, you know, Nero, like, you know, he, he really tried his best not to kill Britannicus. He tried his best to be really, you know, have a lot of clemency. And it was, it was very necessary to kill the guy. Nero felt really bad about it, et cetera, et cetera. None of it's true. Right. Nero was just like, yeah, kill this guy. And so why did he do that? One of them was support. And one of them was to try to influence Nero, because what Seneca seemed to have really wanted was for unclemency to get this very popular, positive reception where the public went, oh, my God, Nero, you're so, you know, you're so uh, you have so much clemency. You're so merciful. You're so thoughtful. You're, you know, and and. You want to, you know, and we love you so much for being so judicious in how you rule. And uh, Seneca seemed to hope that Nero would be flattered by all of this and decide to act in that way to continue to curry favor from the public, which is some like 3D chess level manipulation right there. And all of this is very relevant because not only are Eric and I big fans of Stoicism, but we actually have. A fun little series coming for you guys in about a week. And there will be more information on the website and we'll probably throw up a quick podcast. But it's going to be Stoicism Week. And we're going to be talking more about Stoicism, of which Seneca is one of the main figures and Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius or some of the others, but there are a few others, and how it has helped us in our lives and how it might be useful for the current um, the current situation with the pandemic. So be sure to tune in in a week or so. Yeah, tune in a week or so. And, you know, the first way you can start practicing stoicism is just to know that when we release this episode is something that is totally out of your control. So having anxiety about when you will or will not get it is a, you know, is is just the the mind playing tricks with you and and all it does is reduce your ability to be happy and effective and and to you know be at one with with you you know your own life because you're expecting you know you're you're hurt by something that doesn't exist whereas you should just be uh joyous of the things that do so as you wait for this episode have gratitude for every moment uh including listening to this episode including the sun shining in your face, the wind in your hair, the rain on your scalp, you know, the taste of a the taste of a fruit in your mouth. And and we'll see you when we see you to talk about all of these ways that the great some of the greatest thinkers in history, whether they were emperor, you know, with all the power, advisor with this mix of influence and and power and and restrictions, or slave with no power and no autonomy, how did each of these folks from these three radically different and radically extreme positions in society, how did they use stoicism to reconcile their decisions, to be at peace with life, and to recognize you know, um, what they could do and what they couldn't do and, and choose what to do? 
because stoicism is ultimately an ethical philosophy. It is ultimately about helping you decide what you should do with the little time you have here. And we're really looking forward to being able to talk with you about it. So with that, we'll say, dear Les, blah, dear listeners, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. This is, and uh, this is Eric saying, wear a bloody mask. And then signing off. We'll see you guys soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.